I'm delighted to be here at the Coliseum, home of English National Opera, to celebrate the future of the ENO, and in particular to celebrate the work of three young composers, all of whom have been or are being commissioned to create new works that the company plans to premiere over the next couple of years or so. So I'm thrilled to have three of them right here next to me this evening, uh, Nico Muley, Ian Bell, and Ryan Wigglesworth, although, of course, I shouldn't really call them uh, composers of the future because all three of them are, in fact, well-established. Uh, Nico trained at the Juilliard in uh, school in New York. You may have caught his opera Two Boys when it had its world premiere here at the Coliseum back in 2011. Uh, you may have seen it at the New York Met, perhaps, where it was co-produced a couple of years later. I'm delighted to tell you that ENO has now commissioned again with the New York Met his next opera, Marnie, which is inspired by the Alfred Hitchcock film, which you'll be able to see during the next season, 2017-2018. Ian Bell's first opera was A Harlot's Progress, based on the famous Hogarth engravings to a libretto by Peter Aykroyd, and I was lucky enough to be present at its world premiere in Vienna in 2013. A year later, Ian turned to Charles Dickens for his chamber opera, A Christmas Carol, and his most recent opera, as we've heard, was In Parenthesis, a very powerful piece portraying the experience of fighting in the trenches in the First World War and based on the epic work by the Welsh writer David Jones. But let me start with Ryan, and this time, some very definite news. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> Ryan has been hard at work, as you know, composing an opera based on Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. And this is scheduled to have its premiere at ENO in just over four months' time in February, <laughs> which is uh, terrifyingly soon, I guess. Now, actually, I first knew of Ryan as a conductor, particularly, although not only, of opera. He's currently principal guest conductor of the Halle under Mark Elder, and you may have seen him here at the Coliseum conducting Carmen and Cosi, among other works. He's also an established composer with works for the BBC Symphony Orchestra, a violin concerto, and an orchestral song cycle, to name a few. But he is also, of course, ENO's composer in residence. And it's your winter's tale, Ryan, that uh, we particularly want to hear about this evening. You'll be conducting it yourself when the work opens in February. And I see that ENO have lined up uh, Rory Kinnear as director and designs by Vicky Mortimer. And you have a terrific cast, don't you? Tell us about that. Gosh, yes, it's an amazing cast, really. Um... Some great, great British singers, Ian Patterson, Sophie Bevan, Lee Melrose, Sue Bickley, Anthony Gregory, Neil Davis. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And um, Rory and Vicky, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful team. I, I mean, Rory hasn't directed anything before <laughs> in his life. Um, and it was my it was my bright idea. I'm taking the credit for this one. Bec I, I, I knew I know Rory. I, I knew of him before, and we had chatted quite a bit. And I knew that he was very musical. I mean, intensely musical. I don't know whether anyone's seen him singing 
down the road at the National Theatre. It's good. It's a good. I mean, it's a good tenor voice. Um, but his knowledge of the art form, his knowledge of this theatre in particular, um, is extremely in depth. And as soon as we started talking about it, I, I just knew it was it was right. And he's very excited about it. And you know, it's particularly exciting for. Um, an actor of his caliber who will one day, no doubt, play Leontes in The Winter's Tale to, to come at it this way. Very exciting for him, Andy and Patterson, to, to sort of discover this role together. Um, that, you know, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. The thought of, you know, where that's going to go. Um, and Vicky Mortimer, um, is a, the most wonderful designer and, and a, a close friend and, and colleague. So um, it's a real, feels like a real sort of family affair, which is what I need actually to get through this. <laughs> so I can see that you'd sort of, you could guarantee to get the sound and the style and the tempi and all the rest of it that you want with no argument, but perhaps there are some disadvantages to conducting your own music because it, you might be sort of too close to it. Yeah, there is that. It would be, it, it, you do miss, I, I suppose, stepping back. But if someone else conducted, I'd just make their life miserable. You know, I'd be, I'd be backseat driving and, you know, anyway. So. How, how far are you following Shakespeare's text? I mean, presumably there's lots of scenes that have had to be adapted or reduced or even omitted. I mean, yes. who did the adaptation of the text? Was that you? Um, pretty much entirely me. And it was a long and painful process. And... I had to develop a way of working as I went. And I knew that I, the game I played was, in the first instance, not adding anything, but just taking a pair of scissors to it. And the first thing about Shakespeare is that the lines are too long in general to be sung. I mean, the thoughts are too long. So you have to snip and snip and snip and snip and get it down to you know, ideally sort of Wagner-length lines, which in, in late Shakespeare is, a, is an enormous challenge because the language is knotty and complex, deliberately so. I mean, in the case of a, the, a character like Leontes, the, when the madness burgeons, you know, that's, that's how it manifests itself in this incredibly labyrinthine language. And it's supposed to be sort of going over our heads to an extent. Um, but I, I, that's what, that was what I was, the way I was working was just shaving and shaving and shaving until actually I ended up with something which was too compressed. And then I, when I started actually composing, I allowed myself to start adding back in when necessary. So I, I started with a sort of skeleton and then put a bit of flesh back on it. I suppose it's a hard question for you, but I'm just wondering perhaps if you can give us a little insight into your composing methods. I mean, do you tend to sit in one place at the piano and do it for a certain amount of hours, or do things come to you in the park on a Sunday afternoon? Well, I live in the countryside. I live in Oxfordshire, and my routine um, when I'm at home is... 
I get up quite early and I walk the dog for half an hour. And then I take myself to the end of the garden where I've got to study and, and, and compose, try and compose through to sort of lunch. And then the afternoons are disasters. So I try and find, um, you know, I might orchestrate or... Is this the same for you? I mean, you know, I just mine is similar. It's like there's a, there's a there's a two hour good yeah. window, and the rest of the day is just chaos, fear, and snacks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cups of tea. That's yeah, the, uh, endless cups of tea. Starting at like one thirty. <laughs> yeah. So I I try I try and make use of the afternoons doing doing, you know, things that don't require, you know, the the real kind of creative juices because they tend to be there either very early or very late. My, my mother is a, is a visual artist and she used to categorize all thought as either having an idea or not having an idea. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is a very useful one where it's like, <laughs> yes. it sounds like your morning is about an idea and your afternoon not so much. Yes. How yeah. far have you written for particular singers? Were they sort of given you before you began work on it? Um, and would that would having a particular singer make you write in a, a certain style or pitch? Or? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was very lucky in that I, I, I was very involved in, that, in the process of putting this cast together. So I, I knew from the very earliest days who I'd be writing for, and, you know, that, that had been, you know, in my mind for a long time. And, I, you know, I know most of them, have, have worked with most of them previously, so um, I have an idea about you know the character and what what might be good for, in their voice. So finally, on this one, I mean, um, are we going to ex should we expect something magical, something dark, something playful? Is it? Can you give us a little insight into anything or bits of it? Be nice. Can I tell you not to expect anything? And, 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 <laughs> it's much nicer that way around. Um, gosh, I don't know. I'm sort of too close to it at the moment. Mm. I, you know, I think, you know, I, I can't remember who, probably lots of people have said this, that, you know, in some ways you're, you're in the worst position having composed a piece to know what it is, you know. And you know, part of the, the joy sometimes pain of the process is, is, is seeing what, what you've done. And, you know, I suppose if you've done your job well, I th I'm sure Britain said this, you know, that if you've done your job well, you, you should be surprised but yourself by what it is. And, and you know, you, especially a work of, of, you know, on this scale, which I'm not used to. I'm not, I've never worked with this size of canvas before. So that was a huge process of discovery and it took a long time for me to feel comfortable with it, you know, but I think the longest piece I'd written before this was maybe 17 minutes, you know, so it's a, it's a very different challenge. I mean, I suppose I, I'll be very happy if, you know, this is an idea that's gone back a long way with me. I, I, I was a student when I had the idea about turning this wonderful play into an opera. And I'll be happy if some of that original spark and impulse that was there from the beginning comes through, you know, because ultimately that's why one does this, because you, you know, I love the play, um, and, but I want to create my own thing, obviously, and that was another process, you know, not feeling like I was a slave to the play. Um, the play exists, that's fine. So in a sense, I, 
you know, I'm free to do what I want with it. Um, but I hope it has all of those things you mentioned. <laughs> um, certainly you... some darkness. I mean, the, the first act is a, is, a, is a big act. It's about an hour. And it's pretty tragic and, you know, Greek and it goes. Um, and Bohemia should feel like the world is turned upside down, the opposite. And the third act, back to the original colour, but then going to a different place. So that's the, that's the big shape of it. And do you anticipate the idea of making any last-minute changes once you see it? How relaxed would a composer be about doing that? Oh. <laughs> Oh, I'm awfully sorry. <laughs> I don't want to torture you. <laughs> no, no. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't really say until, um, until I've got to that yeah. point. Um, feels like a long way away. Yet. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, there's, 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 there's lots, lots to do. Um, but um, it's thrilling. I mean, when it, when it, it's the best feeling in the world when it's, when it's going, you know, when, when, the, when the blinkers are on and, on mm. your inhabiting this world it's just it's such a shame that writing music down takes such a long time it's so <laughs> laborious you know um so that's the that's the thing is you know having to grip on to that that initial idea the impulse and try and hold it there whilst you're you know i wish i were a painter i wish i were a poet <laughs> and throw this stuff on the canvas and, but um yeah well thank you very much and good luck with the work Brian. Um, thank you we're very much looking forward to it. I'd like to turn now to our other two distinguished young composers, both of whom are also old hands at opera. Uh, Nico Muley has been extraordinarily prolific, something over 80 compositions, I think, I'm right in saying, to your credit, perhaps more I since I wrote I that yesterday. <laughs> He's written song cycles, including for well-known British singers such as Yestin Davis, Mark Padmore, orchestral and choral pieces, um, particularly interesting for me, though. Um, he's also gone back to earlier times, for example, a piece in commemoration of the composer, the Tudor composer, Orlando Gibbons. Um, that was for the Vile Consort Fretwork and the Hilliard Ensemble, exactly. I believe. <laughs> and, and also you've done Recordare Domine, which was uh, commissioned by the Lincoln Center and the wonderful Talis Scholars. That, what, that was just an unaccompanied piece or vocal piece? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Nico's also written for theatre and film, worked with the ballet companies in New York and Paris, and here with the Royal Ballet. Yeah. So, um, I've already mentioned or just touched on your forthcoming opera, Marnie. It's an interesting thing adapting Hitchcock. And so technically and legally, we're adapting the novel from which the, mm, the, mm. the, um, the film was taken. And when, when I realised that the novel... Basically, I, I knew the film first, I think, like a lot of people with, with um, things that Hitchcock adapted. And then you realize, when you read the source material, the novel is actually completely, completely different. Um, the novel is set in England. It's set 10 years earlier. Um, it has a much darker undercurrent. And you realize that Hitchcock, one of the, one of the stranger things about him is, as an adapter, um, his interests are obsessive and fetishistic, right? And so where a novel gives a little hint at something, Hitchcock will glom onto it and turn it into this kind of obsessive world. So basically we've gone backwards into, um, backwards out of Hitchcock's kind of bizarre universe into what's, what's essentially a sort of pulp um, uh, 
crime novel um, with a very bizarre pop, pop psychology undertone uh, by Winston Graham called Marnie, which is set in, in and around um, Barnet in the late 50s. Uh, but how did the idea to do Marnie actually come about? Um, so what I, I've, I, I feel, you know, I've, you've written like 75 operas. I, I, this is number three, so I, I, I was... And, but the first two that I, that I made were very odd, and um, the, the one that happened here, Two Boys, was this kind of wild thing that takes place primarily on the internet, and um, like most operas, is all about lying um, to, get, to achieve emotional goals. But unlike most operas, um, there was no real central person through it. There are a bunch of central people who existed in this bizarre ballet. So I thought, when I was, when I was thinking about another piece, I really wanted to do something where there was one, one real living human being who doesn't exist on the internet that takes us through as a, as a challenge for me as a composer. Like, what, what, is the ver what is the version of an opera which to me is kind of deliciously old-fashioned, right? Where it's following Tosca or Norma, like that, that, that kind of single woman's um, itinerary. And when you think, for me, when you, when you ask that question of like, what is the, who, who in, our, in our landscape is, is worrying about um, one woman's journey through a space, uh, especially given the operatic traditions of sort of, of, sort of um, violence or sexualized violence, it's Hitchcock really. Um, and so much of his, so much of what his obsessions are about is, is taking these, the, taking these women, these actresses he was obsessed with, and and doing an endurance test. And I think that that resonates with me in in sort of the Italian nineteenth century tradition, right, where it's like let us take this woman, and subject her to this unbelievable um, ritualized torment over three hours. So that that to me was, um, that was the starting place. <laughs> Do you want to outline the story a bit more for us? Or... Sure. Um, it's I've a... actually been watching the film. It's kind of in great, right? Absolutely wonderful. I'm only halfway through the... The film is so crazy. It's, Don't tell so me essentially, the end. <laughs> you know, the, it's... The, the, the premise is that there's a woman who... And that you'll, you'll, this will resonate with you if you know a lot of operas. That there's a woman who... Um, her, her MO is that she uh, changes her identity all the time. Um, and she gets sort of low-level jobs and then sort of endears herself to the boss, usually an older man, and then gets the password to the safe and then steals all the money and changes identity again. So we realize, and we start to ask ourselves, why does this keep on happening? And we start to peek into her childhood um, and we start to peek into why it is that she, that she is this way. And we learn a lot about her mother, we learn about her grandmother, we learn a whole different sort of matrix of things about what it meant to be a woman living alone in the 40s and 50s, or in the 30s and 40s in, the, in this case, um, in the suburbs. And all the, the whole kind of world cracks open and we, and we see kind of, what the, the, it's the origins of sort of modern, again, like people do this because of, of childhood trauma. Um, it's one, it's one, one of the great kind of uh, novels about that. So that to me is, is very operatic. Um, and who's going to sing the do we have any idea of who's going to sing the central sort of psychologically we crazed role? We have a role. bunch of ideas, but that I actually can't tell you because I'm I, I, we're, we're in the we're in the middle of it right and now. And that was so. the Tippy Hen Hen Hen. Hedrick, role. Yeah, exactly. And also the uh, Sean Connery role. It's a, it's, all, it's all a secret. Everyone will be very happy. It's going to be great. And director and cast, <laughs> nothing. No, nothing. Uh, Michael no. Mayer is directing. We, there's this will. Right now, we're kind of we're just in the middle of casting it. We're just in the middle of getting it all organized simultaneously. And you, you must know this feeling. I'm just in the middle of figuring out what's going on with it musically. Mm. <laughs> so I'm still, I, you know, I'm still at the end of the scene. And I can't figure out how to end this scene, and it's driving me crazy. So I have two different kind of two different piles of problems. 
So musically, any ideas, that, any way you can describe for us, it's, I know it's hard in words, but sort of some f idea of the flavour of what we might expect? What, so the governing compositional principle is that there is, this, there is, and this is true of a lot of opera, but basically everything this woman says is a combination of an absolute black and white lie and a deep, deep truth. Right, so all the all the harmonies are organized where you can sort of look at them from both ways. You can look at them from two different ways, mm -hmm. and everything is in a sense of of flux, like forceful flux. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one of the amazing things, because I've seen Nico's first opera here, is that his music has this most outstanding sense of propulsion, which really lends itself to dramatic telling and dramatic storytelling. So I'm. Um, you know, well, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure you brought some of that to the table. Are, are you sticking with the 1930s, 40s, 30s, 40s, it's, 50s, yeah, 50s, or 60s even, I suppose? It's sort it? of 58. Yeah. 58 you're sticking Barnett. with that? You think you're going to stick with that Don't you kind think? of... Yeah. I do. Yeah. Just wonder why you've said it in Tudor times. One of the things that's great about, about the past and is that you, you know, you really need to give the Wigs department something to do. Because if everything's, if everything's contemporary, then you know, what are they doing? So it's, I, think, I think a sort of suburban 50, late 50s um, you know, Chipping Barnet wig is, is the look. <laughs> well, thanks for now, Nico, and best of luck when the time comes. Um, I'd like to move on, on towards Ian Bell now. I've already mentioned that Ian's most recent opera was In Parenthesis, based on a text by David Jones. It was commissioned and premiered by Welsh National Opera, but you may have caught it as I did when it came to Covent Garden a few months ago. It was an enormous success. Um, I was really moved and very struck by the amazing choral sections that Ian composed for the troops when they were in the trenches awaiting their fate. It was really remarkable. Much of Ian's work has been for The Voice, and like Nico, he's written song cycles, cantatas, and of course, opera. Ian, looking back over your career so far, you've certainly, I know you've had the opportunity to work with some of the finest singers around. Take us through a few of them. But, but specifically? Yeah. Or like name drop. Right, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and tell nasty secrets. Uh, yeah. Um, well, my closest artistic relationship is with the German soprano, Diana Damrau. She, I started working with her about 10 years ago. Um, first of all, with some small song cycles, which became bigger ones, which became orchestral song cycles. And then an opera about a syphilitic prostitute. Oh. With a 30-minute long syphilitic mad scene <laughs> that was Hogarth's Harlot's Progress that premiered in Vienna in 2013. Yeah. Um, awesome to work with her. I mean, the three operas that I've done so far and the next two that I've got coming up are, as you've said with Marnie, they are, I write very big main roles. They're very long. And they're, my operas are operas that obsessively track and trail. Oh, they have been up to now. What do you mean by that? Um, the central character is obsessively the central character. So with the Hogarth, Mol Hackabout is the Hogarth harlot. And she's in every scene. With Christmas Carol was an adaptation of Dickens' own one-man version where he, Dickens himself used to play all the roles. So that was 95 minutes for Held Antenna. Uh, in parenthesis, likewise, followed the, the, the journey, the Orphic journey of this one soldier, John Ball, um, through in parenthesis, through, through, who's in the text himself. And these are all enormously long, akin to Italianate roles. Um, and it's in through, through forging these roles that I get the most enjoyment. So, for instance, when I did The Harlot with, with Diana, 
Um, not only did I anatomize her voice in terms of vowel placement, what, what vowels she modifies at different parts of her voice, and where the breaks are, the tessitura, where she likes to sit, uh, at what point in her voice she can pin dynamics back, where she can move forward and all that stuff. Did all that, but also, you know, seeing, you know, opera plans in five years, five-year cycles. So when I started planning The Harlot with Diana, it was 2008. We were looking to 2013, what she was singing at that time, because she had that in her schedule at that point. And it was right, so she was having lots of Treviatas and lots of Lucias. So I was able to fashion the role in a, in a way that I knew would fit her voice. Also, other singers of Lucia and Traviata. But um, I think fitting a, a role to fit a singer so closely for a world premiere can only help because you, you want the singer to sound as best as they can and you want the piece to come across the best, the best as you can. And um, that's why I like working with singers so closely, mm. she being the top proponent of that so far. I mean, looking back at the, your operatic work so far, or your work generally, we've had Harlot's Progress, Christmas Carol, a song cycle about Shakespeare's fools. We've had a cantata to mark the Great Fire of London. And of course, we've had in parenthesis. I mean, I find it quite interesting that... Uh, Many of your themes are British-based and history-based. I mean, how significant is that? Enormously, absolutely enormously. Um, and when I choose and alight upon these subjects, I'm always surprised that other people haven't done them already. There, there's so much for us to plunder. I mean, Britain, like, got 50 operas out of a seaside town in Suffolk. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, I, can, I can do a fair bit with London, yeah. I like to think. You know, I think there should be something to find there. Um, but the historical side of things, I mean, is that a particular interest of yours? Uh, it, it's, it, t it tends to be that really out there things happened in the past. It, it just so <laughs> happens that the crazy stuff happened back then. Because I like telling quite... Um, I like my characters, particularly in opera. I'm, I've essentially written operas with things in between. And I like to portray characters that are in altered circumstances, alter, altered sense of, senses of being, be it syphilitic, be it Ebenezer Scrooge seeing these, being visited by these ghosts, be it John Ball having these visions that he has in parentheses. And uh, these historical contexts can often provide these altered mm. states and also give license for me to go to other places vocally, um, that I like to do melismatically, so with coloratura, uh, with other unusual vocal treatments. Often, if you have a historical context, it gives you a bit more license to go a little bit more wilder. Um, I mean, collaborating as you all are, or becoming part of, um, you know, such a, a great uh, organisation like ENO, a great company, I mean, it's obviously a, a wonderful thing for each of you. It's also very, very valuable. I mean, can you, can you tell us, just perhaps in a sentence or two, what the value of this collaboration, this association with ENO has been to each of you? Well, th this is where I first saw opera. You know, it's, it's, it's my home theatre. You know, I remember sitting in there, being pinned to my seat by John Tomlinson singing Boris Goodenough. You know, so, well, I mean, if, you, if that's your first experience of opera, then you know, that doesn't ever go away. And... I adore this theatre. It's my favourite theatre, and I, I I love what the company is and what it stands for, and the fact that it always has historically taken risks, and it's so important that it that it that it carries on, and carries on in a way where it is able to still take those risks. Um, 
and it's just very, very dear to my heart. I've, you know, I've, I've worked here quite a lot, and I, I love everything about it. Ian, anything to say? I'll just say Philip Langridge, Mary McLaughlin, Della Jones, then Josephine Barstow, Janet Baker. <laughs> you know, to, to be part of a building, and and looking at the young artists now, Nikki Spence, Mary Bevan, Sophie Bevan. This place has musical form, and to be part of that is 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 is, is it, it's an honour. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's it's been such an important place in the in the ecosystem of opera, and and not just I mean of of course of you know I'm selfishly I love I love its commitment to contemporary work, um, but as you say it's like the, it's the history of sort of young British singing. It, it just comes to these doors. But also I should say one of the things that's important about I think what we're all doing to go back to your first question about about trends in in operating. What's great is everyone is commissioning operas. People are commissioning operas that take place. <laughs> in rooms the size of a car that take place, you know, it's, everything is happening, this is all great. But what's amazing about what, I think what's going on right here in this room is that we're all discussing um, contemporary grand opera mm. in a big space, right? And this is really important because it, and, and again, this is not to say that anything smaller is not important, but the fact that we're all committing together to making work on that scale, right? Where it's not 18 people, it's 118 people all together in this gigantic organism. It's so thrilling and it's so, and again, it's, it's a total honor to be part of this ecosystem, which is so important here, but also to London and to, I think, you know, the, the world of, of, uh, of contemporary music and, and of all music.